My name is Anthony, and as always, I'm recording out of sunny San Diego. Uh, today, I'm going to be joined by Matt Whitey, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Boucher's today. Um, before I get started with uh, our conversation, though, um, I'd like to give a quick shout out to uh, all my fellow brothers and sisters in arms saying happy uh, Veterans Day, but especially to my Marine Corps brothers and sisters. I'd like to say happy belated birthday. Hopefully you all got a chance to enjoy it. Uh, I know for me personally, I took the time for Veterans Day to uh, go out and do a little bit of fishing and enjoy the time that I had there. Uh, so Matt Whitey has uh, won a couple of awards. Uh, he has an American Homebrew Association Mead Maker of the Year Award. He's uh, given speeches with... Uh, the uh, American Mead Maker Association about Boucher's, and uh, he's also won uh, the Michigan Mead Cup Best in Show recently. Um, I've already got Matt on the phone with me. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself to everyone real quick, Matt? Yes, uh, Matt Whitey. I'd also like to thank the veterans for their service to the country, and I'm so happy to be here on uh, this podcast. So uh, one of the questions I like to ask everybody, because I think it's always an interesting question, is uh, how did you get into making mead? Uh, what brought you to this journey? Well, it was really through home brewing, and Charlie Papazian in the Complete Guide to Home Brewing has a couple of recipes for mead. And I would say about 1998, I did a couple of those recipes. I didn't do them very well, and... Uh, they kind of taste like nail polish remover. I ended up taking a BJCP class here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and some and there's a mead night where we learned about mead. And I couldn't believe how good the meads were that I had. And this was back in 2006, 2007 time frame. And I realized I I uh, basically thought that uh, there was something something about me that uh, I, I wanted to try myself, and, and from there I started brewing it and, and, uh, and never looked back. You know, it's uh, interesting. Billy actually uh, mentioned the same <clears throat> uh, author, uh, Charlie Capacian, as part of the reason that he got into brewing mead, and I have not read any of his books yet. I definitely am going to have to start picking one of those up. Um, oh, go ahead. No, it's a... Uh, I think they're a little bit dated now, but in the same token, it was really back in the day that was that was a lot of all that was available, and, and he's really the godfather of home brewing, and uh, the recipes are are well done. It just you know I think using maybe modern techniques with uh, nutrients etc. really really help that that process along. So 
it's uh it it is the way that i started and and then uh, i know a lot of other folks actually when i gave the boucher talk at the american homebrews association he was in the crowd and that was one of those bucket list type of uh, moments for me because he really got me into mead and then here he is in the audience uh, listening to me talk about uh you know caramelizing honey so it's it just a great honor that must have been a really really interesting thing to happen there um so another question I do like to ask everybody is, uh, what is your favorite mead that you personally have made so far? I know as a home brewer or even at the commercial level, this is a little bit of a hard question because it tends to be the next one you're making and the newest, craziest recipe you've got going. But I always like to ask this just to see what people are thinking. Right. Well, I think the, there's a couple... I, I'm really into making floral beads with rose petals, etc. right now, uh, also Polish beads. So to, to answer your question, kind of, you know, that's what's in my fermenter now. But generally speaking, I think ginger meads and, and meads with citrus have, have always been something that I've really enjoyed myself. So there's competition meads and then just things that I like having in my, in my kegs or in uh, bottles in my basement have generally been meads made with ginger and or citrus i'm actually uh doing my first uh methaglin right now which is a vanilla chai uh but i'm trying to see if i can get my hands on some uh jasmine tea because i think that would really go well in a mead uh i've drank a lot of it back when i was stationed in japan and absolutely loved it so um oh go ahead no certainly Teas of all sort work great with these, the astringency and the tannins, I guess, to counterbalance the, the honey. So I, I've really enjoyed many, many meads with, especially when it comes to maybe sessionable meads, lower alcohol meads with a little bit of uh, tea and or citrus work just wonderfully. Yeah, um, with the vanilla chai one that I'm using, I'm actually using a seasonal yeast for it. That's a, it's a cider yeast, and it's actually bringing out a lot of the flavor. I'm really happy with, with how that one's going so far. Um, so outside of your own mead, what would you say is probably the best mead that you've tasted so far? Oh, that's really hard. <laughs> and in fact, I've tasted so many good meads, great meads, especially what uh, I've been at the Mazer Cup. It's, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but I would say the most special experience that I had was at the American homebrews uh, conference in minneapolis i was able to share or taste the heart of darkness with ken Schramm, um and that was really just an awesome experience so I, I i know that's kind of an easy answer but the heart of darkness is really just a, a wonderful mead and and to actually you know taste that with ken Schramm himself was just a wonderful experience I know that's always a, it's always a hard question, which is kind of why I ask it, to be honest, because I like to kind of put people on the spot, and a lot of times I get more than one answer to that question, uh, which is part of the reason I enjoy asking that question. Um, so, with us talking about Boucher today, uh, they are wonderful meats to make, but there's a lot of safety concerns that we need to talk about before we actually get into the process of doing it. Uh, could you explain a little bit about the safety issues that you could run into with caramelizing honey for us? Sure. In, in, in that, I can, two 
with beads here, but there's lots of different ways to caramelize honey or to, you know, heat that honey up. Uh, and, and we can talk about that in a bit, but in, in the same token, if you're going to be doing it on a stove or anything that's open, you're going to really want to have every piece of your body that's exposed, your skin, your eyes, etc., covered, right? So you'll wear glasses um, and uh, long long sleeves, have some kind of butts on when you're, you're doing it over a stove pot, um, all the way to... Depending on where you live, I've actually had bees. So I've had issues with bees coming through. So living in Minneapolis, we are in winter. I have snow on the ground here. Bees aren't an issue now. But certainly in the fall or summer, if you start boiling honey, they will start coming to you. So um, ideally, you're going to do that in an enclosed area, either in your home, um, you know, hopefully your, your spouse or loved ones okay with the smell in the house, but doing it outside, you can actually have some some bees coming after you as well. Um, all the way to you know doing it in a crock pot, making sure you're watching it. I know some people do that in a crock pot and then walk away. You really should be in the house when you're doing it, uh, if especially if you have the lid off. There can be a possibility of it um, overflowing. Um, all the way to doing pressure canning, right, uh, which you'd want to use the normal protocols like you would if you're doing a, using a canning, um, uh, if you're doing pickles or anything else, you, you want to use the normal protocol. So it really is uh, kind of the bridge between making meat and brewing. Uh, many people that have been brewing for a long time know that, you, you, you know, you just can't walk away from this stuff. It will overflow and, and working with hot liquids can can uh, lead to injury so you, you really want to be careful especially when it comes to honey because it will it will pop and snap and splatter on you so you want to keep those exposed parts of your skin and, and body covered up um when you mentioned the beads it reminded me of uh there's one specific time i was uh, caramelizing honey and i left my window open in my house and i had about 10 to 15 bees end up inside my house before I realized where they were coming from. And it was very unfortunate. And luckily nobody got hurt, nobody got stung, but it was kind of a, well, here's your sign moment for me with that. Um, yeah, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think of that, right? I mean, that's, the obvious one is, oh, I don't want to get stung, but truly, I don't know the biology of it, but they will come. They, they they smell the burning honey or, or caramelizing honey and, and they're gonna they're attracted to it. Oh yeah, and uh, the outside of my house was covered. Like there was a good swarm of at least fifty of them outside. Like once I closed the window, they were still kind of banging on it. And uh, it's definitely something you do want to pay attention to. Uh, I know uh, I've talked with Chris over at Golden Coast a couple times about him caramelizing honey, and he personally doesn't. Uh, on a <clears throat> propane uh, tank outside, and he'll just wear a suit, like a beekeeper suit, and he ends up covered in bees while he's uh, caramelizing his honey, doing it that way. Um, so I know uh, you just kind of touched on a couple of the methods. The two main methods I know of that I've used uh, for caramelizing honey are the crockpot method and then... Um, Using the stove, I know for me personally, I prefer to do it on a stove because it's faster, but um, could you explain a little bit about the different methods as well as um, which one you 
personally prefer over others? Sure. So you're you're talking about, I guess, the methods to caramelize honey, and while crock pots may be slower, what they give you is a more uniform heat. So if you really wanted to do it quick, you'd use a wok. And anybody that's used a wok before at the bottom is hot right and then on the sides it's not so hot so your overall honey let's just say for the sake of argument you put five pounds of honey in a wok you may be looking at it and it's 240 degrees great but at some points at the bottom it could be 600 degrees or higher right so you're going to get these extreme hot spots that are going to be essentially you know decomposing that honey and forming acrid maybe not so desirable flavors in your honey it would get it done quick but not necessarily give you a uniform taste and or perhaps undesirable flavors so you can certainly do it in a pot that's the way i do it but i highly recommend using a very thick bottom like a if you if you're familiar with home brewing uh something that's going to give you a uniform kind of heat dis, uh, dispersion as opposed to some thin aluminum pot, uh, you know, like a turkey fryer type of pot that, that could have hot spots, right? Because you're going to look at your honey and say, oh, okay, I'm at 240 or wherever you're shooting for, I'm good. Um, if you have a thin pot or some kind of um, something that is not uniform, you could have hot spots and give you those acrid notes that you may not, might not like. So a uh, pot's fine. It's the quick, easy, dirty way to go. Um, and if you have the right type of pot, great. Hats off to you. Crock-Pot's going to give you that uniform. That's the whole reason people like Crock-Pots, right? You put the chicken or barbecue or whatever you're going to put in there, and you're not going to have these hot spots. The other method is to use a canner. And I really like um, using uh, uh, the canning method because what it will give you is a, again, more scientific uh, method or I shouldn't say scientific, repeatable method of heating that honey. So you could literally put in X amount of pints in that canner and then you can set it aside just like you would with specialty grains for brewing. So you can use that same 15 psi for 45 minutes with the same honey and you're going to get a real repeatable result as opposed to in a pot where you know you have that hockey uh hockey stick shaped curve where if you go an extra five minutes sometimes that makes a big difference in terms of um uh, of how, how much caramelization you get so i find that in terms of repeatable results the can it really works well the drawback to that is, is that you can only do so much in a in a canner. If um, a cook uh, a crock pot, you kind of have the same problem. There's only so much honey you can put in a crock pot, and it takes a long time. Whereas if you have a big like 10 gallon brew pot or 15 gallon brew pot, you can put quite a bit of honey in there, um, and uh, it, and it goes quite quick. But the drawback is, is unless you have a very thick pot at the bottom, you could be running into problems. Huh, that's so. a lot of information there that even I didn't know about. Um, with the 
uh, stove method, uh, you mentioned uh, the burning on the bottom. I feel that one of the things that does kind of help prevent that is constantly stirring the honey. And uh, I feel like, uh, in my opinion anyway, it does also help to prevent overflowing by kind of stirring the foam to where it kind of dissolves out a little bit there too. Oh, absolutely. In all methods, even with the crock pot, you need to be near, near the pot. And I would recommend stirring it all at all times when you're using that stovetop, especially if it's a stovetop and it's in your house and you want to remain married. Um, you don't want that thing overflowing. Um, that's really bad news. And uh, and, and that, le I guess, leads to a, another little point in terms of the caramelization. You know, different sugars will caramelize at different levels. So as more and more of the moisture is kind of boiled off, you're going to, to, to see higher temperatures and or different sugars caramelize at different temperatures. So fructose will caramelize at 230, where maltose will caramelize at 356, right? So you're depending on the type of honey you have and, um, and, and kind of the atmosphere that you're in, you're at, you can't necessarily depend and say, oh, I've done this before. Well, if you have a different honey, it may actually caramelize and, and, and act a little bit different than it did last time. So you really can't leave anything to chance and you need to be watching that, that pot. Um, that actually kind of goes into my next question here, which is, um, how do you know when you're done caramelizing a honey and uh, how do you range that and uh, what different notes do you get at different levels? Right. And that's the million dollar question is, is that's difficult. There are a ton of variables. Every, you know, we've already kind of covered your pot itself, the hot spots, at what temperature you're going to be caramelizing at. Um, fructose caramelizes at 230, sucrose 330, maltose 356, right? Well, just using an example, uh, mesquite has, you know, about 5.5% maltose and 40% uh, fructose, whereas orange blossom has 7% maltose and 30% fructose. So every time you use a different honey and every time you use a different heating source, you're going to have kind of different levels of, of caramelization. And um, you, you really almost have to rely on your senses. And, and uh, Bob Slansy uh, is a uh, kind of one of these mentors I've had on, on Boucher's in terms of, you know, he kind of shoots from the hip, but frankly, using your senses of sight and smell are one of the, your greatest assets in, in this whole bit. And the fact that, you know, there are so many variables that affect the caramelization of honey that unless you do this kind of like canning method and do it over and over again and, and really have a better understanding of it, it's, it's, it's difficult to know. So I think just using your sight of uh, smell and sight, a lot of people use those white plates and then take little droplets, you know, every few minutes or every 5, 10, 15 minutes. That, that frankly is a very good uh, measure. Uh, until you kind of get it dialed in that you know, okay, this pot at, at 60 minutes at this temperature is going to yield this result. So I think I think those are going to be your best measures, sight and smell. Um, I kind of have to agree with you in that regard. Uh, I know for me personally, I, I do very much shoot from the hip when I'm caramelizing honey. 
Um, but kind of my method for it is uh, when I start to see the, f uh, the honey foam up to where it's almost like a marshmallow texture as I'm stirring it, that's normally around the range that I personally like to shoot for because I feel it makes it nice, light, and fluffy. And uh, I feel like the toasted marshmallow notes really suit a lot of the meats that I make really well. Right. It, it's um, especially at, at the start, right, is, is that you almost have to use your, your senses to, to figure out where you're at. I use that. Um, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it in, Fran uh, in French. The Le Menagier It's basically how to be a good uh, good wife to your husband. It's a, a French recipe way back when. And they say to caramelize the hell out of it until it like froths up and then drops and it's just acrid, and as soon as you start doing it, you go, this is not right, this doesn't smell good. You know, it's almost like a, putting a marshmallow in the, in the campfire and it just turns into carbon. You know, it's that kind of thing. That That's not good. Maybe some people enjoy that, and if you balance your meat properly, maybe you can make that to work, but it's so much easier just to get a light caramelization on that, and, and you can kind of see that as a, you know, when you, you take a marshmallow and put it in the campfire and get a nice golden brown toast to it as opposed to that, like, you know, you set that marshmallow on fire and the outside is just carbon. You know, that's not good. Right. At um, least not, not for drinking, at least. So. I, I have heard people mention that uh, with the really dark caramelized honey you kind of get like coffee notes and like maybe like a burnt toast taste sometimes as well and uh i guess with those you might be able to do a really good braggot i haven't tried doing it yet but i think it would go well in something like that especially if uh, you're trying to do like an ipa braggot or something like that well again it's all in balance right so sure you could use black uh, using my home brewing uh roots here you can use black patent malt uh, in your beer, right? It's astringent, coffee, roast flavors, but you wouldn't use it for 100% of your grist, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, at, at a few percentage points of, of what you would use in your overall grist, you'd still be using, you know, different, you know, paleo malts, et cetera, for, for making your port uh, or stout, but you would be using it at 100%, right? So sure, those really roasty malt notes, if you want to use it for a boche, okay. It's got to be a small portion of it uh, to balance it out. So Right, because when you're getting that dark, you're definitely going to have to still bring back some sweetness in some way. And um, this actually kind of goes into my next question also. Um, regarding boches, there's been a lot of talk about uh, unfermentable bull sugars because of the caramelization uh is there any truth behind that at all to where the sugar does not ferment because of it being caramelized right people refer to them as unfermentable sugars and that's what they are just like my example of the roasted marshmallow right so if you take a marshmallow and just toss it in the campfire eventually it's just going to burn to dust right that was a, almost a hundred percent sugar Mm -hmm. and eventually if you heat it to a certain degree it's it's just going to be decomposed and, and you know it, essentially you will have that so there's a certain amount of points you know for sugar or honey or uh, dme or liquid malt extract that you can calculate when you're making a beer or bragget or mead um, and when you caramelize that honey 
whatever points that you would normally attribute to, you know, your gravity for that mead, yeah, essentially you would be um, essentially decomposing some of that honey. To what degree, that remains to be seen depending on how much you heat it, you know, what kind of pot you're using, how long you use it. But if you get that thing to, like, roofing tar, sure, there's going to be, I'm using quotation marks, unfermentable sugars, but they're not sugars anymore. They're, it's just unfermentable um, carbon, right? Just like you would with a, with a marshmallow. So yes, you certainly will have some degradation, but you know, if you lightly caramelize it, maybe, you know, at low temperatures, maybe not much at all. So, so it's uh, the campfire mentality has been kind of our big metaphor here. And, uh, I, I think the best way to look at this, in my opinion is, uh, the longer you caramelize it, the less likely you are to have, uh, more sugar that is able to ferment. So, uh, I can definitely see the darker caramelization will be more difficult. Um, and with that in mind, I know personally for me, whenever I do Boucher's, uh, I tend to use a K1 as my yeast because I mean, it's a workhorse yeast. It, it can deal with a lot of stress and ask for seconds, in my opinion. Um, are there any yeast strains that you would recommend for Boucher's uh, that would help uh, with dealing with the stress that could come into play here? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you want to do. Um, I find uh, in, in K1V, great yeast, and I hate to, <laughs> hate to sound this way, but um, I often find with Boucher's, if you have it, um, more heavily caramelized, you're going to have to, to unless you're, you're going to back sweeten it, you're going to start with a higher original gravity. Um, 71B, frankly, does great with osmotic stress. So if you're going to have some kind of, you know, higher gravity to start with, um, that's going to be a good yeast to work with as well. So something that can handle those higher, you know, sugar content, um, must at the beginning would be great um and i'd also just think about i almost never make a boucher that's just a straight up boucher i'm adding like you know i think about the recipe formulations of oh, i can make a you know uh bananas foster or something you know cherries flambe so what are what are yeast that are going to accentuate some of those uh fruit type notes or spice notes and, and think of it that way but um you know unless unless you're going with um a, a lower session boche which frankly i haven't really done too much of uh maybe a root beer uh type you know you caramelize the honey for a root beer type mead um i would want to go with something that could handle higher osmotic stress and or accentuates the spices or fruits that you're actually going to be using in, in combination with that uh, caramelized honey so um kind of from what I'm hearing, uh, the boche itself isn't a huge factor in your yeast selection. It's more what else are you doing in your uh, in your recipe that kind of brings out what types of uh, yeast you should use, like what kind of fruit or spices you're using. Correct. Okay, that definitely uh, makes a lot of sense to me there. Um, I think my last question for the night uh, is going to be if there's one tip that you could uh, give a person just starting out making mead, what would it be? So similar to your question about what's the, you know, the best mead you've ever had, 
it's very easy to talk about sanitation and good, you know, yeast hydration, temp control, all those kind of things. But I think for somebody that's just starting out, um, I watched a uh, video from uh, uh, Chip Walton, essentially, with Kurt Stock. Uh, and he said something that really hit home with me was, you know, if you only make one meat in a year, maybe two, you're going to think it's great, right? Because it's the only meat that you have. And if you can make many meads over the course of a year or two, you're going to sit there and line them up and go, okay, this is great. This is good. That's a failure. Um, I think trying to make quite a few meads is going to help you accelerate your mead learning curve more than anything. Uh, you know, I know sanitation, all those things are important, but uh, I'd recommend split batches. And that's one of the things that I really do. So uh, I'll take a five gallon batch and split it out into five separate one gallon batches and then add this, add that, use different yeast, um, try different uh, different variations of fruits if I'm adding them. Uh, at different times or different levels, it really helps so, so that at the end of the day or at the end of the year, you didn't just make three batches of mead. You actually made like 15 batches of mead. And then you can kind of line them up and go, okay, I, I, I understand what I did right here or wrong there and, and why. And these are really good and these are not so great. And uh, I think that, that really helps accelerate the kind of learning curve is, is split batches, frankly. I definitely have to agree with you in regards to brewing a lot because uh, when I first started, uh, I kind of set a goal for myself where once a month I would try to do a different mead. And uh, I've kind of overshot that goal a little bit to where it's turned to I do two different meads every month. Uh, and uh, as I've gone, uh, I've been able to taste my own and... There's been times where I've realized, okay, I've overshot the alcohol percentage in this one a little too much, and it's taken out uh, too much of the flavor because of that. Or um, I don't really quite like the way that this yeast is bringing out the flavors. Maybe I should try a different yeast. And uh, in fact, speaking of that, uh, I did try a different yeast uh, the second time I did my Huckleberry Boucher. And I was a lot happier with the results with uh, the yeast I used the second time around. So um, I definitely agree. Uh, keep doing more and more meads. Don't give up after your first one just because it tastes like nail polish, as you put it earlier. And uh, right. you, you have to keep trying to figure out what works best for you. Well, and, and then also, what, what can help mitigate those things? So... Uh, it, you know, I'm a BJCP judge on, uh, in, for brewing beer, and I often joke, you know, some of the faults would be green apple, Band-Aid, things like that. If I get a beer uh, that tastes like Band-Aids, I'd often say, well, they should have entered this under the, you know, um, specialty category of, you know, porter laid down on Band-Aids, right? Like they, they aged on Band-Aids because then you're calling it out. To some degree, that's true with meads that, that you can actually, if you, if you have a mead that maybe has this fault or that fault, let's just say green apple, and, and I know it's it, it sounds like it's kind of cheating, but go ahead and, and make it into a sizer. Add some apple juice or, or something of that sort that can maybe help mask that or, or cover that up. And you go, oh, well, that's actually now palatable. 
and, and maybe that's something, a, a crutch to get you through when you're first starting, or uh, you can make some very good meads by essentially, you know, either covering it up or, or using things that, um, you know, maybe if you get a smoky phenolic flavor for your meads, well then, why don't you try, you know, adding spices or things that might kind of complement and or add to that smoky phenolic taste? So you go, well, now that means not so bad. But if you're trying to add bananas to a smoky phenolic taste, well, that's not going to taste very good at all. And you're going to really notice it. So um, I think those kind of things, when you split, you have a split batch that has a flaw or something of that sort, you kind of understand, okay, well, the spices work well here for that phenolic taste. And I'm not saying that you should make meads that have that, okay? But when you're first learning, that was your question. Perhaps, you know, by doing that, you'll you'll learn more about – sometimes you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your, your successes, right? So – and then how can you work within that within that confine? So it's – and then to your point, just making more meads is great. But split batches will also just accelerate it. So not only are you making those meads – in a large clip but now you're accelerating it by doubling or tripling the amount of batches that you're making so right and uh with the split batches that you were talking about you you have a little bit more uh forgiveness with experimentation there too where uh you can take one batch uh side by side with another add spices and fruit and back sweeten to try to bring more flavor out of it where you leave the other one sitting to where it can age and then from there compare the two to figure out which one you actually like better and exactly. uh, i feel like the split batch method definitely is a huge help as well uh and, and then once you figure that out make a full five gallon batch right i mean it, 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 it frankly is a lot of more work by splitting batches but it, it really does accelerate your learning curve Right, and uh, I, I know for me personally, I started off with uh, one-gallon batches, but I quickly learned uh, the amount of work that you put into a one-gallon batch is going to be about the same amount of work that you put into a three- or five-gallon batch. Exactly. And uh, the biggest difference there really comes down to your initial cost, but um, the payoff at the end of it is well uh, it's a lot better of a payoff when you do a three or five gallon batch than a one gallon get, uh, batch where, especially if you're using fruit, uh, you're going to lose a lot of your volume once you take the fruit out of the mead. So, um, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. And, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, be able to have another conversation here in the future. I look forward to it. All right. Have a good day. This has been Viking Fuel. Skull. Skull.